Alright, Forge family, last time we were together, we watched Paul the Apostle begin to illuminate the new covenant ministry to the Corinthian churches. And because of that kerfuffle between the, the churches and the in Christ faction, and the challenges to Paul's apostleship, uh, when all those uh, other bands, the band of apostles rolled into Corinth to sort of unravel his ministry, Paul knew that those churches were under stress. They were, they were shaken. And so he opened chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians with a question somewhat like this. And his question was, Are you brothers asking me for letters of commendation? And then Paul turns the tables on the adversary, stating that the very lives of those believers in Corinth were a letter written on the heart of the apostolic team that had ministered to them for 18 months. Beyond that, that letter was known and read by all men. The transformed lives in Christ shone forth so that there was no doubt those Corinthian believers were authentic Christians. And then Paul unpacked the adequacy of the Holy Spirit that, uh, that makes us capable, makes us equipped, that fills our mouths and, mot- and motivates our hands to be servants of God. Our weakness offered to God strength uh, will accomplish what the Lord wants in us and through us. Paul continued to contrast the changed hearts. Not hearts, they were now hearts of flesh. They were no longer hearts of stone. He looked back to the giving of the law on tablets of stone on Mount Sinai. Yes, the Lord had been present on the mountain and the giving of the law had come with some glory. But not only did the Israelites forget the promises to God and plunge into false worship to this golden calf, the very glow on the face of Moses, having been in God's presence, began to fade away. And then Paul pointed out that although the law came with glory, the new covenant comes with much greater glory, bought by the blood of the Lamb, and that glory never fades away. So let's pray. Glorious Lord, thank you that we have access through the blood of the Lamb to come into your presence with praise and thanksgiving. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that gives life and adequacy into the teeth of death and failure. We stand before you grateful and expectant. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's turn to chapter 3. Let's start at verse 12 and 13. It says, Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and not as Moses, who used to put on a veil over his face, that the children of Israel might not look intently on the end of what was fading away. Now, Paul reflects back on those first five verses of, of chapter 3 as, as part of his source of hope. Yes, Corinthian hearts have been transformed by the messages of the risen Christ. And yes, they had become a letter, known and read by all men. And yes, they had hearts of flesh, not stone. Further, Paul had hammered home that adequacy comes from God through Holy Spirit. With such a hope and confidence, Paul said that the apostolic team used great boldness in their speech. So in Acts chapter 4, when John and Peter 
are walking through the temple compound, they run into the man who's been, he was born blind from birth. And uh, he pays, pays attention to him. I think it was blind from birth. Blind or lame? Can't remember. Nevertheless, okay, he, he, they get him to pay attention to him and then uh, give him what they have, which is healing in the name of Jesus. And it creates a great confusion in the temple compound, and they're dragged from the temple compound in front of the, the council, the Sanhedrin, and uh, ultimately they're told, don't you t- speak this way ever again about this raised Messiah that you claim. And they're just told very formally, shut up or you're going to get punished. But when they come out of that setting, it says that they were so filled with praise because they've been given an opportunity to proclaim Jesus that they passed it on immediately to the churches in, in Jerusalem and all of them took up this Greek word, paresis. It means boldness in their, in their speech and in their, in their prayer. So here in verse 12, I believe Paul is including the Corinthians and we ourselves all believers for all time in this we use great boldness statement in contrast Paul says that we and he's meaning the apostolic team the Corinthian believers and all and all of us who follow Jesus we're not as Moses who used a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from seeing the blinding glory of God now when Moses went back into the tent of meeting be face to face with God, he took off the veil and his face would start to glow again because of the presence of the Lord. But when he came out of that tent, he put the, the veil back on because he didn't want the people to see the fact that, that the longer he was away from the tent of meeting, that glow faded away. And that veil prevented Israel from seeing his own issues. Now, veils in ministry, it veils in our lives, okay? Veils in our walk with God, they, they cover false modesty, they cover self-justification, double standards, sensitivity, racism, timidity, you name it. All of which can lie under the radar in the life of leaders and in our lives as well. But chances are, that stuff isn't under the radar at home. It's amazing. You can have this fabulous public presence, but you go home and you're with family and stuff leaks here or there, and it's been hiding behind a veil. So this issue of wearing a veil has plunged uh, spiritual leadership into the pit to this very day. Leaders, apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit and obedience to God, are men and women who often have great gifts of leadership, administration, organization, counseling, teaching, etc. And in our Western cultures from the time of Paul to today, uh, we set those leaders on pedestals. The term in the last 40 years has been, quote, celebrity status, unquote. Now, celebrities wear veils. They never want to get caught out in public or private without their best face forward, without their spiritual makeup on. Now, there's a man named Dr. Paul Cox. Some of you know him, know of him. He has this uh, phrase that he looses on passionate individuals where he says, quote, the office of Messiah has already been filled. Unquote. If such a spiritual leader 
relies on himself or herself or on the system that they fabricated for leadership, for adequacy, and for appearance, then they're out of compliance with the Lord. I have memories of a young pastor, uh, local uh, uh, here in this in this area, and he grew up in a denomination that pushed its young people into Bible colleges. That was just it was a given. You went through high school, and then you know everybody everybody just went to Bible college for a while. And he was a music major in in Bible college, and on graduating. He was asked to be a worship leader in an early startup phase of a church in that denomination. So he picked up his family, moved across the country, and he was there for 18 months. And they, you know, he was a vocalist. He played many instruments. He could lead choirs. He was just what they wanted. The problem was, after 18 months, there was a split in the church, and it collapsed and, and went poof and disappeared. So the denomination had to do something with him. And they asked him to move from that location into California to a little mountain church and on arrival um, he was put in the pulpit that young man had never taught he had never preached he was a vocalist he was a musician and the leaders in that church pushed hard on him to stay and they loved his music and and yes he he his teaching was good enough which he himself had grave doubts about and I remember sitting in a, in a meeting with his leaders and, uh, and, and just having a sense of his utter discouragement. Uh, but he kept his veil in place and he kept his smile going through that turmoil. And soon after that, I had his son come and help wire uh, overhead speakers in our living room for house church at the time. And uh, while I was working with the son, I could see the same veil over emotions, tight control over emotions that his, that his dad had. And that, that pastoral sojourn, if you will, uh, in the mountain church didn't turn out well. I have a memory of a local pastor, a senior leader in his denomination who had planted over a hundred churches, most of them in California, many of them in California. Uh, I was not in his, his denomination, not in his network, but I would see him maybe twice a month at a pastor's prayer meeting uh, locally. And he was jovial. He was easy to talk to. But my early stages of discernment kept going off. I mean, I, there was just little alarms. Nothing huge, nothing like, whoa, what's going on here? I just felt like, man, something's off here. And, uh, and then I got a phone call. Uh, it was from a young pastor I did not know. Um, and he informed me that uh, his father-in-law, the church planter, had abused his daughter, his granddaughter. The, you know, the pastor's the man who called me and, and this church planter's granddaughter. Um, once that was out in the open, that that pulled the linchpin, the the the, the cornerstone, whatever it was, out of the out of the the, the system that that man had built and it came crashing down uh, it was awful nearly every church that he planted he left behind a deeply wounded woman or a woman child now you say how, how can that be how can the church be that blinded well the answer is celebrity status they wanted him there 
And he had a very effective veil that hid his true intents. I have a memory of, of a former employer of mine. I was an account representative for his industrial photography business. I carried a portfolio to I had agencies and industrial accounts and generated business through this photo studio just after I finished in the internship at Peninsula Bible Church and in preparation to marry Janice. I had I needed a job. <laughs> and um, uh, this man was an artist. He was he was an amazing he could do amazing things to create sets for all these pictures that showed up in, in the industrial magazines. And, but there was a, a particular set that was with a live, live people on the set, and there was a model that came to that set that enticed him. And he left his wife and his children and blew up the business partnership. Now, uh, Matthew 18 says when that happens, you go to your brother and you say, uh, these things ought not to be, if you will. And if he will hear you, he'll be restored. If he doesn't hear you, then you go with two. You, two brothers go. All right, that had already happened. And finally, I was part of the team that was sent with elders to confront this man and call for his repentance. And he um, he stood comfortably. He had a placid look on his face. He kept smiling and nodding and completely rejected the appeal to repent. See, that was called, that's called a moral veil. That no, he had no consequence. No consequence of what, no, no ability to conceive of what the consequences were for his choices. J.A. Hunter wrote this about godly leadership. He said, it is the antithesis of celebrity. A model of leadership that many Christian many Christians in prominent positions have a very difficult time resisting. Celebrity is, in effect, based on an inflated brilliance, accomplishment, or spirituality generated and perpetuated by publicity. It is an artifice, and therefore a type of fraud. Where it once served power and patrons, in our day it mainly serves itself and its pecuniary interest. Celebrity must, of necessity, draw attention to itself. So there's a razor edge here in Paul's teaching where he's describing the choice of the heart to serve the Lord with gladness. And the other side of that razor edge is those who choose to serve the Lord as a stepping stone to a platform, a position, popularity, publishing contracts, and broadcast presence. How many leaders have we seen rise and fall with this particular inner drive. And it may not have even been their internal drive because sometimes there are those around spiritual leaders who get behind them and push them prematurely and radically up into the limelight to celebrity leadership. And all the while, those people keep their veils in place. And their statements like, all is well, all is under control, all is honoring God. Those three phrases are often revealed as untruths when the light of day falls on them, when the veil comes off. Paul comes back hard. He says, not as 
Moses. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament or in the writings of the rabbis that interpret the Old Testament in the, from the Jewish tradition of the Jewish scriptures, nowhere is there that interpretation of the fading glory of the face of Moses. It's new revelation by Holy Spirit poured out in inspiration through Paul to the Corinthians and to us as part of the new covenant ministry. Then Paul continues in verses 14 to 16 and he says, but, your, but their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. To this day whenever Moses is read a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. It was the minds and hearts of Israel that had hardened. See, they were, they were terrified at Sinai by the glory of God. And they pushed Moses out in front of them and said, You, you go and meet with God. We'll, we'll just wait for you to come back and you can tell us what he said. And in so doing, they distanced themselves from their creator and their God. The text says that their minds were hardened. And that to Paul's day, and then onward to our day, whenever the Torah is read. Now, Torah is the Hebrew scriptures of the first five books of the scriptures. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they were written by Moses. We believe they were written by Moses. And when they are read, it says the hearts of Israel are veiled. The veil is not an intellectual blockage. It's a moral blockage. That veil prevents them from understanding and responding to the new covenant. That veil was put in place by disobedience and has been reinforced by the enemy for 3,300 years. Now, I also believe that there's been a vast shift in America from honoring the scriptures, from obeying the Lord, from acknowledging God as God. And a veil has been set in place so that rising generations cannot hear and cannot see the works of God on their behalf or on behalf of their nation. Like Israel, they are, there are blinded generations in America. And it goes beyond the veil to hardened hearts. And it's here that Paul translates and interprets Exodus 34, 34. And it says, essentially, when you come into the presence of God, the veil is removed. Our demonstration, our invitation, if you will, to the lost, to the blind, to the hard-hearted, is for the purpose of, of walking, welcoming them into the presence of God so that the veil can be lifted and they can hear and they can see and their hearts can be changed. Verse 17 reads almost as if Paul has zoomed out again back into the triumph march of Christ. In the face of hard hearts and veiled spirits, Paul presents the new covenant answer. Quote, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, is liberty. For those who walk in the new covenant by Holy Spirit, the expectation is one of liberty. Freedom from veils and hard hearts. Freedom from our own demands that come from within us the twist stuff inside of us, and freedom from other people's expectations. Now, 
theological scholarship is filled with cast aspirations of blindness, of veiled eyes and hearts, of minds and souls that have turned from hearts of flesh back to hearts of stone. In the theological world, there is a bondage to beliefs that set in sets individuals apart and above others. There's no, lib- no, there's no liberty in that stuff. Freedom in Christ flows from Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord, not from scholarly positions and argumentation. Theologians need that liberty in Christ just as we do. In both cases, if the work of Holy Spirit is rejected, hearts remain hard and veils remain in place. Verse 18 continues, quote, But we all with unveiled face, beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So here's a rare reference in the New Testament to, uh, uh, to looking in a mirror, to having, a, having the reflection of your own face, your own person. That Paul wrote that we are so filled with the glory of the Lord that when we look in a mirror, what we see back as a reflection is the glory of God. Now, I want you to think about that. Further, from little glory to greater glory, we are being transformed by the Lord, the Spirit. We should be glowing, aflame, spreading light abroad by Holy Spirit in such a way as to be visible before the Lord, his angels, and before the lost. That is part of the fragrance of life to life and death to death. The phrase, quote, are being transformed here in verse 18. We are being transformed. It's in the passive voice, all you grammarians. Passive voice means it's done to us. It's not something that we put our own efforts into. It comes from outside to inside. And it means that the transformation is done by Holy Spirit within us. That opens the door of freedom to rest in the changes the Lord is bringing about. And sometimes we get in, our, in a situation where there's changes and, and, and there's transformation, and you go, Lord, I didn't ask for this. This is uncomfortable. I, wait, excuse me. It was done to you. You didn't ask for this. Now you have a chance to rest and see what he does with it. So, Ford's family, what I want you to do is take this, these descriptive things, okay? Here, that talks about the great boldness, the unveiled faces, the soft hearts, the freedom, continuing transformation, okay? Because that, that's supposed to be a lifestyle for us. And it's ours by the blood of the Lamb and by the power of Holy Spirit. So, when you take those descriptive elements and you hold them up in front of yourself, do you reflect an evidence the presence of God in you? Is there glory in that viewing? Is there gratefulness in that viewing? And in the memories of his work in you, our veils have been taken away. Don't keep them in a drawer. Don't get ready to mask up again. Okay? One day, you will be like Christ. Now, here's a great quote from Principal Robert Rainey, 
who set a ringing challenge before those at the communion table of New College, which is in Edinburgh, Scotland. And he said this, Do you believe your faith? He asked. Do you believe this that I'm telling you? Do you believe a day is coming, really coming, when you will stand before the throne of God and the angels, and the angels will whisper together, say, How like Christ is he? How like Christ is she? That's not easy to believe. And yet to not believe is blasphemy. For that, and not less than that, is what Christ promises. Let's pray. Lord the Spirit, how blessed we are to have the veils lifted, to have received a measure of freedom in Christ. We want more, Lord, more boldness, more transformation. You are the Lord of change, and we rely on you. In Jesus' name, amen.